turn then to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, as we will be looking at verses 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And hear with me then the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, today, brothers and sisters, we begin a a brand new study in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And I'm really excited to be in this book here and to be preaching it and even looking forward into the future of God so allows to go right into Second Thessalonians afterwards for these two epistles are, are so rich and we have so much to learn from them. Right? And Second Thessalonians piggybacks off a lot of what First Thessalonians says and so it's, it's good to take them both together especially in regards to eschatology or last things as eschatology seems to to fascinate so many of us today. And although even in saying that, it's important to note and to highlight that this entire letter of 1 Thessalonians is eschatological in nature. And what I mean by this is that Paul is writing to those who are living in the, the last days or the latter times. And this is what we hear from the author of Hebrews. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so what that means is that every Christian, we included, are living in these last days. And our salvation in Christ is itself evidence of that, of those end-time realities. And so what Paul has to say to the saints in Thessalonica isn't just history. It's not just something he spoke to some first century people far, far removed from you and I today. But rather, what Paul says to them is very relevant for you and I, as we will see as this letter unfolds. But before we delve into these first three verses, it's probably good to maybe set the stage to understand what the purpose is that Paul has for penning this letter. And so, it's important to note that the church in Thessalonica is a young church. It's a diverse church. This is a church that Paul himself planted that we read about in Acts 17. And I would encourage you on your own time maybe later today to read Acts chapter 17 and 18. We don't have time to do that together here, but it will help you to understand what's going, what's going on and what 
Paul and the saints are going through. But just to uh, summarize briefly, Paul is in Thessalonica, we read in Acts 17. And he walks into the, the synagogue. And he, it says that he was proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. That He was the One who suffered and rose from the dead. And we are told that through that preaching, Jews and Greeks and many prominent women believed in Christ. Yet we also learn that in Thessalonica there were unbelieving Jews there who were jealous. And they formed a mob and they went out and tried to capture Paul and others who were with them. And so Paul was forced to flee to Berea. And we read, likewise in Berea, Paul preaches the Word and what happens? All these people are coming to faith in Christ through the preaching of the Word. But then we read that these same unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica are angry and they travel to Berea in order that they might create trouble and stir up problems for Paul. Stir up another mob. And this resulted then in Paul being brought then to Athens. And so, we get a little taste of what's going on. What's the background to this letter? Right? We see the reason why Paul writes the saints in Thessalonica. He is defending his, his own character against their vicious attacks. But likewise, he's writing to encourage the saints. Right? Against the attacks that they are dealing with from these same unbelieving Jews. And he's calling on them to persevere in the faith. And so Paul pens this letter. And he adds, Sylvanus and Timothy are with him. Right? He's, he's saying, they too send greeting. But yet also, by putting his name next to theirs, he implies that they're in full agreement with what he's saying. He's saying to the, to the saints in Thessalonica, I'm not the only one saying this or who, who, who believes this. Someone like Timothy, who served amongst you, as we will read in chapter 3, he backs up every word I say. And so Paul wants them to, to listen to this and to, to trust in what he's saying. Right? And so as was, is customary with Paul, he opens with this customary greeting and he addresses them, as, as the, he addresses his letter, excuse me, to the church of the Thessalonians. And so in these first three verses this morning, we will learn three important Truths about the church. We're going to learn three important truths about this assembled community out of, that has been called out of this world. The ecclesia of God. Right? A term used of the Old Testament Israelites that gathered nation of Israel that God called out of the world. And now Paul calls the saints in Thessalonica the church or the ecclesia. And the importance of this statement is that Paul is calling them, as well as all believers, you and I alike, he is calling the true Israelite congregation of God. Right? But what does Paul say is true about this congregation of God? Well, the three things that he says are true about the church is that as the church, we are a church in both God and Christ, that is first. Also, we learn that as the church of our Lord, we are a thankful and prayerful people. That is second. 
And lastly, we learn about the church that its members have an inward grace of the heart that cannot help but to appear in its effects. Okay? So we are a church in both God and Christ. We are a church that is a thankful and prayerful community of saints. And we are a church whose members have an inward grace of the heart that cannot but help to appear in its effects. So then let's, let us look then at point one by reading once again verse one. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. You see, Paul here describes to us a church that is in both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know in modern society this is unpopular to say, but we're going to say it anyway because Paul says it. The true church is distinguished from all other peoples of faith in the fact that we worship the one true God. Right? God, one being, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul himself says this in this letter that we worship the one true God. Just move your eyes down to verse 9. As Paul tells them that they, they were turning from serving idols to what? He says that they turned from serving idols to serve the true God. And because our God is true, every other object of worship must then be false. And what is it then that Paul asked for them to receive from this true God? He asks grace and peace at the end of verse 1. Now, this is the reality that all human beings must come to grip with, especially upon hearing this opening address from Paul. And it is this, that you will never receive grace apart from or outside of Christ. You will never receive grace outside of or apart from Jesus Christ. Now, of course, God allows the sun to beat upon both the just and unjust. He allows the rain to fall upon both the godly and the wicked. But it's obvious that this is not what Paul has in mind when he asks for grace and peace for the saints. He's talking about that grace and that peace which alone come through saving faith in Christ. He's talking about those blessings we receive through that relationship we have with Christ our Savior. Because it is only those who have Christ who have forgiveness of sin. It is only us who have regeneration and justification and sanctification. It is only the saints who have real joy and peace and assurance of everlasting life. And so, if you have not the Son, know that you have none of these. And the world hates that we say this. But we only proclaim to the world what it is that the Son has revealed to us, isn't it? For it is Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. It is Jesus who said, no one comes to the Father except through Me. John, the disciple of our Lord, through divine inspiration in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. He says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Yet whoever confesses the Son has also the Father. You see, these are not my words. These are the words of our Lord. These are the words of Scripture. And this world can't stand it. This is why so many are hostile towards Christianity today, aren't they? This is why so many are attempting to make true Christianity inclusive. But they do this because they're not familiar with Scripture. Because they do it by trying to, what? They try to widen the gate to allow as many as they can inside. But have they not heard the words of Jesus? What did Jesus say? Narrow is the gate. Hard is the way to eternal life. Wide is the gate. Easy is the path to what? To eternal destruction. Right? And so the Christianity that they peddle isn't true Christianity, but it is a counterfeit. They are the ones who are ashamed of Christ and try to manufacture a Christ whom they wish had came, not the Christ who actually came. Right? But what does Jesus, our Lord, say about such people? Well, Luke records in chapter 9, verse 26, that Jesus says this about them. Whoever is ashamed of Me and My words, of Him will the Son of Man be ashamed of when He comes in glory. Brothers and sisters, let us not be ashamed of the words of our Lord, but rather, let us boldly stand up for the truth of the Word. Yet also, Let us not be those who revel in the ignorance of others, but in love and gentleness and kindness. Let us proclaim to them the truth of God's Word. Yet know this, that you do no good thing. You do not help your neighbor in sugarcoating who Christ is and what Christ said. Because in doing so, even if they are to come to believe in that Christ that you you have told them about, all you are doing is leading them to belief in a false Christ. And then they are no better off than they were before as an unbeliever. Let this teach us, brothers and sisters, rather, that we ought to proclaim the true Christ, the One who suffered and died, yet who has been raised and is seated at the right hand of God, just as Paul did. And then let us allow the Lord to do His work. For it is God who gives ears to hear. It is God who gives eyes to see. It is God who softens the heart of the sinner to receive the message of the Gospel. It is He who gathers the church and separates us from the world. You see, but this is the problem. If other so-called Christians actually believed that, that it was God who was the cause of all salvation, then they wouldn't try to alter the message of the Gospel and make it more palpable to the ears of their hearers, would they? No, they wouldn't. Rather now instead, they hope that in their own wisdom, 
They can convert someone. If only we tell them about a Christ that we think they would like to follow. But I ask, is this what Paul did? No, this isn't what Paul did. This isn't what we just read about in Acts 17. Right? What did Paul do? He walked into Jewish synagogues. He walked amongst those who did not believe that Christ was the Messiah. And he preached to them Jesus as the Christ. Without concern for the consequences. Right? He did so. He preached the Gospel without shame. And so I ask today, is there courage here that the likes of Paul had? Do we have that same courage here today? Because I tell you what, as the years continue to pass and pass, we surely will need that courage. And so we see that Paul writes to the church that we are a church who are in both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have one without the other. And so he reminds them of this. He reminds the saints of their faith. He reminds them of the Gospel that they received and believed in. Right? That these unbelieving Jews were trying to convince them otherwise. Yet in Paul's writing, what is it that he reveals to us ought to be the response of the church? What ought to be our response because of God's grace? What ought to be the response of the church? How ought we respond to Him after He pours upon us this grace? He says it should elicit a response of thankfulness and a life dedicated and devoted to prayer. And here we have then point number two. We as a church are a thankful and prayerful community. Look once more at what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? You would all agree, wouldn't you? Right. Thankful for our redemption. Thankful for our new life in Christ. Thankful that God set His electing love upon saints such as us. Thankful for His continued grace which sustains us. Thank you. Thankful for the ability to turn to our rock, to turn to our refuge in prayer. Thankful that we know that He answers our prayer. Right? This is why Paul gives thanks to God for the saints. Because it is nothing that you and I do to merit this grace and this peace. But rather, it is what the Father has done for us in Christ. And so we must ask ourselves today, does this thankfulness describe us? Does this thankfulness describe us? Are we always giving thanks to God? And if not, why is it that we aren't? Well, I think Paul provides for us the answer in what he says here. Paul said that he gives thanks for them constantly, remembering their work of faith, their labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. 
a key word here that you should highlight and note that Paul uses is remembering. You see, thankfulness arises out of reflection. You will not be thankful if you are not one who reflects. Right? Without reflection, you will have an unthankful attitude. And maybe that's what our problem is today. We don't take time to reflect. But rather, everything we do is spur of the moment. Right? On the spot. When we sit down to pray before our meal, we just quick rattle off a prayer. When we put the kids to bed, we just quick rattle off a prayer. I ask, when you come here for the Lord's Day, have you thought about yesterday? What it is you would like to come and pray for today? Have you reflected on it? Because Paul gives thanks for what he has reflected on that is true about these saints. Thought about the grace God has shown brother and sister. Those specific things that we see in them and thank God for them. Do we think about and reflect on how God has answered our prayers? Because Paul has shown us here in these first three verses that we ought to be doing that as the church. When we see the grace of God shown in brother and sister, do we tell them that? Do we tell them that? Because when we tell them that, what do you think it does? It motivates them to continue on into the, in doing that. In seeking it out more and more. Right? We do this with our children. Right? When they, when they tell us the truth, we commend them for it. Tell them, thank you for telling us the truth. And what does it do? It stirs within them a desire to continue to tell us the truth. Don't we like to experience that at work? Don't you like your employer to come up to you and say, hey, you, you did a good job in this. And they tell you that because why? They want you to continue then doing that. And what does it do? It usually stirs within you and motivates you to continue doing that yourself, doesn't it? And so likewise, it's the same here today. We ought to be telling each other what it is we are thankful for. And what it does is it it will motivate one another then to seek out more of that, to continue on doing that. This is what Paul intends to do here when he tells the saints what it is that he's thankful for. Yet, we must note that it is who that he expresses his thankfulness to. He expresses it to God. He expresses thankfulness to God because it is God who is the giver of the grace, isn't it? This is what we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 as Paul scolds the saints there in Corinth for their divisions, as they're following different men in the church, he tells the saints this, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We need to constantly be reminding ourselves, brothers and sisters, that everything that we have received is by God's grace. Right? And so we should be diligent in our thanksgiving to God. Yet our thanksgiving and our praise 
are not sufficient in themselves. What else does Paul say we need to be doing? He says we need to be praying often. right? And yet prayer itself ought to be something we are thankful for, isn't it? For the ability to pray aright itself is even a blessing we receive in Christ. And what a lavish gift it is that He bestows upon the saints, isn't it? Because it is only those who know the Father in Jesus Christ, who have been given the Spirit, who have access to the Father in prayer. It is only us. What a great gift. Yet, how can we neglect this gift? Sunday, when you show up for church, should not be the only time you utter prayers to God. Right? It is Paul himself, we will learn later in chapter 5, verse 17, who says that we are to pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean go home from this moment on and pray every moment of every day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But what Paul is saying to the saints is, as saints, we are to be devoted to prayer. We are to be dedicated to prayer. Daily prayer, but also thoughtful prayer. Thoughtful prayer. Prayer that comes about through reflection and meditation upon God's Word and what He has done for us and what He has done for our brothers and sisters. Or even prayer about sin. Because when we have to pray confessing to God our sin, what does it cause us to do? It causes us to reflect and to think about and to search our hearts for those things that we need to then turn to God and confess. Right? Prayer needs reflection and meditation if we want to be praying aright. Right? Yet even when Jesus tells us to pray for forgiveness for our daily sin, we ought to be mindful and have spent time reflecting upon that fact, yet remembering that as the church we are those who Christ died for. And so He paid the penalty still for those sins. Right? And so those sins no longer hang over us or condemn us. Yet we also must be mindful of the fact that although we are still sinners, our prayers are not perfect. Our prayers are still impure and tainted with sin. And so it causes also to be thankful to God that in Christ He cleanses by His blood our prayer before He presents them before the Father on our behalf. Right? And so we can know that as covenant children, you can boldly go before the throne of God with your petitions and your prayers and God will hear them and He will answer them according to His will. And what a great assurance we have that unbelievers don't. They worry. They fret. They have anxiety. And they try to take care of it all on their own. But brothers and sisters, we can cast all of our sorrow, all of our grief, all of our fears before God and know that He will give to us all that we need to get through them. For the Christian, Christ is our sustainer. He is our provider. He is our protector. Right? And our Father takes care of us. For what earthly father doesn't always try to do and look out with for what's best for his children? Well, how so much more than our, our perfect Father who is in heaven will do that which is good for His children, you and I. And so go to Him in prayer. Yet be reminded that it is 
not only our duty to pray for our own needs, but it is our duty to pray for one another. And remember and understand that if you want to pray well, you must be given to much reflection. Reflection is critical to right prayer. And so what is it that Paul tells us is the reason for his prayer and his thanksgiving? Well, he says it was the Thessalonians' work of faith, their labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. This brings us then to our third and our final point this morning, which is that the members of the church have an inward grace of the heart that cannot help but to appear in its effects. This was true of the saints in Thessalonica, and this was true of Paul, as he tells us, if you want to look with me, in chapter 1, verse 4 through 7 here. Paul says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, to the saints belongs the Holy Spirit, Paul says. And it is that Holy Spirit, you remember, that we read about in Philippians chapter 2, who works in us both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And so, you see, this is why I say that the inward grace of the heart cannot help but to appear in its effects. Because how can it not if you have the very Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of you? And what are the effects we're told that it produces? Right? We're told faith. Right? We are recipients of faith. Paul says to the Philippians, remember that we have been granted faith in Christ. And because of this supernatural work done in us, it produces a faith that, that works. Right? And the Spirit works in us to cleanse and to purify our hearts, which enables us then to exercise this faith before God and men. This is the work of faith that Paul is speaking about. Not just an intellectual knowledge of Christ, but a faith that trusts in Him, that rests in Him for our salvation. This is what we talked about last week. That true saving faith is one that never fails to produce good works. As good works is evidence of saving faith. And this is what Paul's seen in the saints in Thessalonica. He says this, they did not just become a centers to the truth of Christ, but what did we just read? He became, they became imitators of Christ. If you have experienced Christ, you cannot help but to display those effects in your life. And also take note though that Faith is the first in the, in the triad of graces here. It is the, the first of the three Christian graces Paul names. Right? That is because without faith you cannot have love nor hope. Right? Faith logically precedes them. Yet also, you cannot lack love and have true faith. 
They're really inseparable. Right? And so Paul not only commends their work of faith, but he commends their labor of love. They were imitators of Christ by their continual and unrelenting love for God and for the church in the face of discouragement and in the face of testing by these unbelieving Jews and Greeks. And it must be restated, brothers and sisters, that they loved not only God, but the church. You cannot say you love God, but not love His church. You cannot be home skipping church for football and say that you love God or His church. Because to love God is to come and worship God. And God appointed Sunday, the first day of the week, as a day in which we gather as that community to worship Him. Nor can you say you love the church when you neglect coming to worship with your brothers and sisters. You can't be a blessing to them by sitting on your couch, can you? We labor in love together as we gather. We labor as that gathered community, exercising that love in a variety of ways by teaching and admonishing one another through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Right? In the praying corporately together as a body. In partaking in the Lord's table one to another. And so know that your absence, and when I say your absence, I'm not speaking about those who are absent because of sickness or a snowstorm, but those who are willingly absent from the church. Know that what you are showing is a lack of love. And that is not a mark of a true saint. And lastly then, Paul says that he was thankful for their steadfastness of hope in Christ. And he leaves hope last because hope is the end of all graces. We begin the Christian life with faith, we grow in love, and we end in hope. It's a patient hope though, Paul says. A hope that enables us as believers to suffer much here on earth as we have that sure expectation of eternal life which awaits us when our Lord and Savior returns. And so this should aid each and every one of you, brothers and sisters, that you too endure these end-time trials. For we have hope. A hope that rests in the promises of Christ and the Gospel. A hope for that which has been promised, yet has not been fully brought to completion. Yet it's important to note that Paul is telling the saints that as they are living in these last days, in these latter times, this faith and this love and this hope helps them to continue on. These three graces drive them to persevere in the faith. And so, do you know what that means for you and I? We too need faith, love, and hope for it will cause us to persevere in the faith until the end. And so let us turn to God in prayer that we might daily ask for those things that we need that we might too survive. That we might too persevere until the end. And so we see what Paul has taught us here today in describing these graces as work and labor and steadfastness is that the Christian life is not a life of idleness. 
is not a life of laziness, but the Christian life is a life characterized by work. Working together as the saints to spread the Gospel here on earth. To minister to one another. To help one another. To stand side by side in the faith. Defending it in the face of the opposition. Yet, brothers and sisters, we must be relying solely on the grace of God. On His power. His strength. His might. His wisdom. Because if we do not, we surely will fail. And so I call on each and every one of you, be the church. Seek God's grace more and more. Yet remember to be thankful for what God has already provided for you. Do not presume on the grace of God. And yet finally, realize that to you there is no advantage to be in the church, to be a member of the church, if you have not these marks of the church. And so if you hear this message today, and you hear these words, and you say to yourself, I don't have that work of faith. I don't have that labor of love. I don't have that steadfast of hope. I plead with you, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Turn to Him for all that you need. Right? Trust in though the true Christ of Scripture. The Son of God. Very God. A very God. The One who came down and bore the wrath of the Father on the cross. Yet He only did so for those who will believe. And so, pray that God might have mercy on you. That He might forgive you your iniquities. That He might bring you into His church. So that you may serve the only one true and living God. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before You with hearts that are heavy. For Father, as we read our this text this morning, we realize that so often we lack what You commend in these saints. And so Father, we we ask You this day that You would please grant to us greater work of love. That, Father, we would seek more and more unto good works to our neighbor. That we might seek more and more to worship You more ardently in our life. For, Father, true and saving faith produces these works in us. And so, Father, we ask that You would grant to us a greater measure of Your Spirit that we might produce these good works in our life for Your glory and honor. Yet, Father, also, we oftentimes do not labor in love as we are. Uh, we are unwilling to stand up for the truth of the Gospel, to be disparaged or to face discouragement or testing by those in opposition to the faith. And so, Father, we pray that we would labor in love more and more, one to another, that we would labor in love uh, for the sake of Christ and His Gospel. Father, lastly, we also ask that You would grant to us a greater patience and hope. That, Father, we would be willing to endure trials because we know and we have that assurance of faith that when Christ returns, we will be in eternal glory with You, our Heavenly Father. And so, Father, we ask You this day for this increased measure of grace this increased measure of faith and love and hope. And that, Father, You would 
Apply these by the work of your Spirit in the hearts of your people. And we come before you and we plead with you that you would accept these words which come forth from our lips this day. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.